Gonads are useful for their purpose, but they are no substitute for brains. This is supposed to be a happy occasion. I know nothing, nothing. By the way, ladies and gentlemen, as always, this stuff in lieu of actual entertainment. Alrighty then, hello and welcome back. This is Storytime and I am GamerDude. Glad to have you with us for some more stories this week. Today's episode is going to be more of my random musings. I did an episode earlier this year that I called Random Musings, and that's based on the fact that when I put these episodes together, I generally try to have a theme, whether it's movie music or apples or stories about my mom, or whatever the theme is, I try to tie all of my memories and stories together into kind of a unifying theme. But as I go through my memories to come up with the stories, I come up with, oh yeah, I remember that kind of moments. But it's a story that lasts maybe 20 seconds, or maybe two minutes, or maybe five minutes. And so I file them away, I write notes down and remind myself, I better talk about that at some point. But there's not a lot there to expand into a 20 or 25 minute episode. But they're little stories that I like to share anyway, because this is story time. So today's episode is a bunch of those little stories, those random musings, those little snippets of memories that are compact little stories. And that's what I'm going to talk about today. For instance, sailing. Sailing would be a great topic for a podcast. It would be a great topic at least for a podcast episode. And I would love to do that podcast, except I don't really sail. So it would be kind of hard for me to fill 20 minutes on sailing. But I can tell you a story about sailing. Not that I remember that much about the one time that I went sailing, but I did go sailing. Once upon a time, my aunt and uncle, this is my cool aunt who let me drive her Bronco through the field, my cool aunt, the mother of my cool cousin Jeff and my cool cousin Steve, yeah, that cool aunt and uncle, they owned a sailboat. And that summer that I went out to stay with them when I got to drive the Bronco, they also took me sailing. No, I didn't even know they had a sailboat, but they did. And I don't remember the specific details about it because, quite honestly, I was overwhelmed with the fact that I got to drive the Bronco, so kind of everything else faded after the driving. But I do remember going sailing. And they said, come on, we're going to go to the lake. Lake Ontario. They were up in upstate New York and had their sailboat docked at a marina. So we hopped in the car and drove to the marina, and it was a beautiful day, I remember that. Summer day, upstate New York. Windy, which is when you want to go sailing. Because this was a legit sailboat. This wasn't a motorboat with a sail on it. This was an old school sailboat. Now I'm sure they had an emergency backup motor, but I don't remember it. I just remember the sailboat. And I thought it was cool. Because you get into the boat and you have the mast. And you have these giant sails that go up the mast. Now to little 11 year old me, this was a massive boat. It was huge to my 11 year old eyes. How big was it really? I couldn't tell you. Probably not very. But for a kid who'd never been sailing before, there was something really cool about getting into a sailboat, running the sail up the mast, watching my uncle move the boom. You know, that thing that sticks out of the mast at the bottom of the sail is attached to? And there are all kinds of commands to go with it. You hoist the sails and you lower the boom. And I, I don't remember all of the stuff. But I remember the canvas flapping in the wind. And I remember going out into the lake in the boat. And I remember having to duck my head under the boom as it swung over when we made a turn. And I thought, this is really cool. Now, this was out on Lake Ontario, so there wasn't any ocean waves to contend with. And we weren't going to wind up drifting to Europe or anything like that. So I figured we were probably pretty safe. But I liked the whole concept of being out there and hearing nothing but the wind in the sails and the water on the side of the boat. And it wasn't a sea breeze, of course, but the lake breeze in my face. 
This was long before Titanic, where Leonardo stands on the front of the boat and says, I'm king of the world. If that had happened when I was 11, I probably would have done that on the front of the sailboat, because that's how it felt. I'm king of the world! But there was something really cool about jetting through the water in the sailboat. I remember it, and I remember just enjoying that experience. It was amazing. I never went sailing again. That was the only time that I've ever been in a sailboat. I've been on other boats before, the catamaran types, power boats, cruise ships, but never a little sailboat like that. Maybe someday I'll get back to that. It was a great experience. At least to 11-year-old me who really didn't have to do any of the heavy lifting, but it was a great experience. I just mentioned cruise ships. I've been on one cruise ship in my life, and it was a unique experience. I'm not going to bore you with too many details about it because it was not a memorable experience. And here's the reason why. This goes back many years. The kids were small. This is before I learned to book vacations myself online rather than entrust myself to a travel agent. Years ago, the default was to go to a travel agency and have a travel agent book your vacation for you. They gave you great discounts. They put packages together. So yeah, going to the travel agency was the thing to do, at least for some folks. See, my dad never did that because we always had the same vacation, Chincoteague, Virginia. We've talked about that many times. But when I got out of the house, friends, significant others, steered me in the direction of travel agencies. So we went to a travel agent to book a family vacation. And the recommendation was, you guys should take a cruise. And I'd heard of cruise ships. I mean, I'd watched The Love Boat on TV when I was a kid. So I figured all cruise ships were kind of like The Love Boat. And back then, most of the cruise ships were like The Love Boat. They looked like a boat. If you look at some of the commercials for cruise ships now, it looks like a building on a barge. It looks like they took a hotel, laid it on a barge, and set it out to sea. Because they don't look like boats. They have a bow, and they have a stern, and that's the only boat-like thing about them. They have swimming pools, and water slides, and basketball courts, and running tracks. There's nothing boat-like about them. They look like giant buildings on the water. But back in the day... I'd heard other friends say, well, you know, the food is great. You can eat all you want. And the drinks are not that expensive. And there's all kinds of entertainment on the boat. And the travel agent really did a good job selling. Oh, yes, you'll have so much to do. And it stops here, here, and here. And the travel agent recommended a cruise line called American Family Cruises. And as it was explained to us, American Family Cruises specialized in cruises for families. It wasn't just an adult entertainment scene. They had a lot of kid-friendly activities all throughout the day on the cruise ship. And when you're raising kids and you're going on vacation, you try to do things to keep them entertained and entertain yourself as well. The problem with a family cruise ship is not all parents are as responsible as you. Because I discovered that what the thinking was, on the part of at least a few of the parents, was that let the kids go. Where could they go? What could happen? It's a ship. They can't go anywhere. And that's what they did. So you had kids ranging from 8 to 17 years old, running like hooligans throughout the ship, at all hours of the day and night, on every deck, and in every area. Now the ship had a casino and a bar, but it was part of the gangway where you had to go from the front to the back of the ship. So kids were running through the bar, kids were running through the casino. So if you wanted to escape to an adult-type place, you still had kids running around like hooligans. And we discovered the shipboard activities? Not all that exciting. A movie? Okay. I can watch a movie at home. Bingo? Imagine the excitement there is in a ballroom full of tired parents playing bingo on a Tuesday night. Shuffleboard? Sure. That's obligatory on a cruise ship, isn't it? Shuffleboard? 
This cruise ship was one of the old school cruise ships, so there was no basketball court. There was no actual track. The track was running around the deck. There were no water slides. They did have a pool, and they did have a hot tub. But the thing that they don't tell you at the travel agency is, when you actually get to the pool, when you actually get to the hot tub, it's not like the pictures in the brochure. It's not like the commercials on TV. If you look at the commercial on TV, you see a couple, or perhaps a family, hanging out in the pool, having a wonderful time. And it looks like their own private pool. In reality, if there's 400 people on the ship, about 200 of them are in the pool at any given time. That's the reality. There's no sitting by the pool and relaxing. There's a lot of getting to the pool and trying to find a chair. You could walk across the water of the pool by standing on the heads of all the people in it. That's how crowded this place was. In the hot tub, with a number of people in there, I did not want to take a step into that stew of whatever it was that was brewing. Thank you, no. Now, to be sure, there were a couple of nice stops on the trip. The ship docked in a couple of nice places, and we got to see a couple of nice things. But you know what? I'd rather book a trip to those nice places and spend time there rather than be limited to the four-hour window that the ship gives you to do whatever activity it is that they have planned for you there. I like to plan it myself. Do it at my own pace, at my own time, at my own leisure. That's what a vacation is about. When you're on a cruise ship itinerary, you've got to stick to the schedule. If you don't, you either miss out or miss the ship. Yeah, cruising I discovered, not for me. One of the other things that I learned from my travels comes from my days driving all over the place. And I actually learned this from my dad, and I don't know how he knew it, but he taught this to me on the drive that we took to Ohio when I was checking out colleges and universities to go to. And the thing I learned is this. There are all kinds of levels of communication, nonverbal communication, that you use on the roads when you're sharing the roads with other people. By the way, these forms of communication seem to be slowly disappearing because not many people do this anymore, although some still do if you pay attention. But when you're driving down the road, either on an interstate or even on a two-lane highway, and you're sharing the road with long-haul truckers, the 18-wheelers, you'll see those guys want to pass you. And so they'll pull into the left lane and they'll go jetting by you. And then when they get in front of you, they'll come into your lane. And my dad started flashing his high beams at these trucks as they went by after they cleared the front of the car. And I asked him, Dad, what are you doing? What are you flashing your lights at him for? And he explained to me, well, that's the sign in the road. When somebody clears you, you flash your high beams so they know they've cleared the truck. And I go, really? And he said, yeah, now watch. As soon as he gets in the lane, he'll thank me by flipping his running lights on and off. And sure enough, that's exactly what happened. The truck pulled by us. My dad flashed the high beams. The truck pulled in and click, 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 click. He flashed his running lights at us as a thank you. I thought that was pretty cool. And the same thing applied if we passed the truck. If we passed a truck going in the left lane and put our signal on after we passed him, the truck would flash his lights at us and my dad would slide over because the truck was letting him know he'd cleared. And my dad would hit the four ways to thank him because obviously we didn't have running lights, but he wanted to thank him. I said, what a cool little courtesy that is. You still see a little of that today. If somebody's letting you into traffic, they'll flash their high beams. But that comes from the signals on the road that truckers would give to each other to let them know that they'd cleared when they're passing. Kind of a neat little tidbit that I picked up, thanks to driving around with my dad. One of the other travel signals that I picked up was when I got my motorcycle. Now, I didn't get my bike until late in life. I never really wanted one. Maybe you could call it a midlife crisis, or maybe you could call it a dream fulfilled. But whatever it was, I finally got my motorcycle, and I took a motorcycle class and learned how to drive a bike, learned how to maneuver a bike, and learned that I really loved being on a motorcycle. It's a lot of fun to drive a bike around. It's also dangerous as hell. Not because you're an idiot, but because everybody else on the road is an idiot. You have to be very, very aware of everybody on the road when you're driving a bike. 
I've seen people do stuff in front of me. If I was in a car, they would never do it. They think if you're on a bike, you can maneuver much more quickly than if you're in a car. And the reality is a bike going at 40 miles an hour still needs a little distance to stop or maneuver out of the way. And if I have to do a sharp maneuver on a bike, I have a whole lot less margin of error than I do in a car. So while I love being on my bike, I don't drive my bike very much for that very reason. But the cool signal that I picked up being on a bike, and you only notice this if you're driving a bike, is when you're driving along a road, usually a two-lane road. If a motorcyclist is coming the other way, they give you a wave. But it's not a, hi, how you doing, wave? They don't take their left hand up and wave it over the head frantically. It's more of a low-key, cool salute. When you're driving along, you see a motorcyclist coming from the other direction. You take your left hand off the handlebars, and you extend it out low, about 45 degrees. Some people give a full hand salute, but most people give a two-finger salute down low, just to acknowledge a fellow biker. Now, the first time it happened, I didn't know what the hell they were doing. Is that somebody I know? So I didn't acknowledge it. But as I usually do, I went and did a little research and discovered that that's the biker salute. You give that little two-finger salute to a fellow biker coming in the other direction, you either start it or return it. So the next time I was out on the bike, that's what I did. I saw a couple bikers, put out my little two-finger salute, and cool, they saluted back exactly the same way. And it was really just a tiny acknowledgement and recognition of the community of bikers. Because people who ride motorcycles all have at least a little bit of a similar mindset. There's something in the back of our heads that makes us want to get on the bike in the first place and makes us want to stay on the bike. And that little salute is our way of acknowledging, yeah, a kindred spirit. I will say that not all bikers return the salute. Now, I've never run into a quote-unquote biker gang, so I've not tried the salute on them. But I do notice that Harley riders don't necessarily return the salute. I think it's because Harley riders set themselves apart. I'm just guessing at that. I'm just making that up, maybe. But me, I have a Yamaha V-Star. Yamaha owners, Honda owners, Kawasaki owners, Ninja bike owners, cruiser bike owners, dirt bike owners, they all saluted me back. Harley owners, not always. And you can tell the Harley owners because their bikes are much louder. That's the Harley trademark, that loud exhaust. You can always hear them coming. And if you give them the salute, maybe they'll return it. Then again, maybe not. But that doesn't mean the biker community isn't out there. It just means that, just like the high school cafeteria, there's the cool kids table, and then there's everyone else. One of the other things that popped into my head in recent weeks is weddings. Not because I'm getting married, I'm married, happily so, and that's all there is to that. But a co-worker was talking about his son having to go to yet another wedding. His son was in his 20s, and a lot of his friends were getting married, and they were doing these destination weddings. He had to go to the West Coast, he had to go to Europe, he had another destination wedding coming up. And it got me to thinking. Now my college roommate, now this goes back years of course, but when he got married years and years ago, they got married in the church where he went to church, and they had the reception at the church. They didn't hire a fancy reception hall. They didn't go to a fancy country club. They just used the gymnasium attached to the church school that was attached to the church where he'd grown up, and they decorated it nicely, and they had it all gussied up for a wedding. They didn't have a fancy caterer. The church ladies did the church food and punch and dessert and whatever else they had at the wedding, and it was just a very low-key but wonderfully fun affair. That was one of the first weddings that I went to, and it was one of the best. Because everybody was there, family, friends, everybody had a great time. Nobody was out hundreds of dollars for gifts or travel. It was just people who wanted to be there and celebrate the wedding. But weddings these days, not only do you have the destination wedding, 
this coworker was telling me about the destination wedding his son went to in Mexico. None of his family was in Mexico. None of his family was from Mexico. None of his friends were from Mexico. They just decided to go to Mexico and get married there and invite everybody to Mexico to attend the wedding. Now, the bride and groom weren't picking up the tickets. You had to get yourself to Mexico. If you wanted to go, you had to get yourself there, which is kind of demanding, isn't it? Hi, you're my friend. I'd like you to come to my wedding. It's going to cost you $1,200 round trip, including airfare and hotel accommodations. I mean, what kind of wedding is that? How presumptuous is that? I don't think there's anybody that I like that much $1,200 worth. You know what? I'll send you a wedding gift. Here's 100 bucks. Good luck to you. I know that's a, very, that's a very old guy thing to say, isn't it? I ain't going to no Mexico for any wedding. You want me to go to Switzerland for a wedding? What is this destination wedding in Antarctica? I am not going to Antarctica. I mean, that's how crazy it's getting. I've heard of destination weddings to Hawaii and Mexico and the Caribbean. People do these destination weddings and expect their friends to go wherever they're supposed to go for the wedding. Or the other thing people do is rent out these incredibly fancy, incredibly expensive catering halls, at least here on the East Coast, that specialize in nothing but weddings. And yeah, the catering hall, it's beautiful, and they have wonderfully large tables and great chandeliers and wonderful drapery, and it looks like a very fancy rich person's place to hang out. And it costs them $150 a head for the food and the rental, and that's how the joint calculates what the bride and groom owe. Well, let's see, you're expecting 200 people? At $150 a head, that's going to cost you $30,000. And that doesn't count the flowers or the DJ. Or any of the add-ons, like the dessert room? You'll want the dessert room. I mean, stop right there. $30,000? To have a wedding? That's a down payment on a house. Let me think. Would I rather have a one-time party with a dessert room, which is extra, or would I like to put that money down on a house that I can live in for the next 30 years? Let me think. Too many people pick the wedding. And what that does, for the wedding guests at least, here on the East Coast, is it obligates us to give a wedding gift that covers our plate. That's what the term is. We have to cover our plate. What does that mean? Well, we have to guesstimate what it's costing them to have us to their wedding and then give a gift in that monetary amount so that we're essentially paying for their wedding. So if Mrs. Gamerdude and I want to go to a wedding at a fancy hall, we have to estimate about 150 bucks a head, so our wedding gift to the couple has to be at least $300. Really? There's not many places I go where I eat and dance for $150 just for me. Get me a beer and a jukebox and I'm good. I don't need anything more than that to have a good time. But yeah, weddings, have a nice little ceremony, have your closest friends, have your family. It doesn't have to be an exhibition. It can just be a fun time. It can be a nice little party. I'd be impressed if somebody asked me to a wedding at Chuck E. Cheese's, because at least that would be in my wheelhouse. And very affordable. The last little thing I want to talk about, as far as random musings are concerned, is getting rid of critters in the house. These are whatever pests show up in your house. Whether it's cave crickets, and anybody who watches my stream knows how I feel about cave crickets. (laughs) They're too creepy, man, I'm telling you. They're too creepy. But that's one of the only pests that I have a problem with. Give me a giant spider, smush it. Give me a cricket, smush it. I know you're not supposed to kill crickets. If they're in my house, they've they've overstepped. They're out. Sorry there, Jiminy. You made a wrong turn. Centipedes, out. Smushed. Squish them. If I can't get to them, give me a spray can of anything. I don't have Raid there, I'll drown him in Lysol. I will spray the crap out of any critter in the house. He's the deadest but most freshest smelling critter ever. But he's dead, and that's the key. 
I eliminate pests from my house. I do not like critters, do not like bugs, do not like roaches, do not like beetles, do not like spiders. If it's got a lot of legs, get them out. The thing I hate most in the house, though, is mice. As I've mentioned, I grew up in a house in the woods, and as winter rolled around, the little furry critters from the woods would try to make a home in the attic or in the basement or in the garage, and you could hear their little footsteps in the rafters above my bedroom, where you'd see them scurry out of the light as you went into the basement, and they creep me out. I hate mice. My dad taught me how to get rid of mice, obviously a mousetrap, but there's a trick to the mousetrap. It's not like the cartoons. Having watched a lot of Bugs Bunny cartoons and Tom and Jerry cartoons, I just figured put cheese in the mousetrap. Oh, no, no, no. My dad said, the best bait for a mousetrap? Peanut butter. Sure enough, you take a small piece of bread, you dip it in peanut butter, you put that on the little lever where you set the mousetrap, those little suckers can't resist. They love it so much, I would put the trap down sometimes, and within the hour, they'd be dead. And you could hear it, which is kind of disconcerting, actually. You're sitting in the living room and you hear, snap. And you know that Mickey is dead. The thing my dad taught me, don't reuse the trap. Just throw the whole thing away. My dad, who saved and hoarded everything, he said, get rid of the trap. You don't want to be prying the bar open and just tossing the carcass and reusing the trap. It's, no, don't do that. For two reasons. It's disgusting, but also the mice have fleas and ticks and mites on them, and you don't want them jumping from the mouse onto you, so just get rid of the whole thing. But yeah, I became an expert mouse trapper as a kid. My instructions would be, figure out where you think the mice are, and then put a trap where you think they're going to go to get there. So it became almost a game. Hmm, let me see. The mice go this way, so we'll put the trap over there. Yeah, I was a weird little kid, what can I tell you? But man, did I catch mice. It's these little stories that fill my head that keep this podcast going. Because as I was telling you these stories, others popped up in my head. So I've made notes about the next Random Musings episode, because there will be another. You'll discover this. The longer you live, the more little stories accumulate in your head. Yes, my mind is very, very twisted, but in a very suburban way. That's going to do it for this week's episode of Storytime. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for listening. I really do appreciate your support. You guys are the best, and I can't thank you enough for all the time you spend here. Until next time, you guys take care of yourselves. And I'll see you when I see you.